Chapter 5 Work Jim's stomach growled, the smell of breakfast wafting up through the rickety timbers of the inn and tempting him cruelly. But he couldn't face it. He was too nervous. A good night's sleep on a real bed had done nothing to make the prospect of presenting himself at the workhouse any less daunting. Since parting ways with the crew yesterday, he'd been at his leisure to explore Shoalhaven, at least as far as the clutch of bar coin in his pocket would allow. He'd considered sleeping rough to preserve coin, but feared for the safety of the weld gear he'd dragged around behind him like a crippled pet. In the end, he'd found a humble inn on the outskirts of town, the bent bow, and taken a small room on the top floor that promised a view of the bay. He glanced at the small high window and saw gulls wheeling out above the water. If you stood on the bed, you could make out the tops of the masts of the ships in harbour, but no more. He'd tried. A half-day in Shoalhaven yesterday had left him with more questions than answers about his new home. He'd never understood how people lived when they weren't on a ship, who provided their food or a bed for them. A night in the bent bow and a simple bowl of salt rice had cost him half a copper bar. He had enough from what the captain had paid him to live like this for perhaps a three-week, if he were careful, but then he'd be on the street and hungry again. But these people couldn't all be staying in inns, and they couldn't all be indentured either. Jim supposed they must have built small homes for themselves, perhaps. It was also confusing. He'd seen children playing while he sat downstairs to eat his salt rice. They were mostly younger than him, boys and girls playing together. They had a ball and a wiry old dog like the ones that used to catch rats in the bilge of the trossel. Jim had worried for them to start with, but had soon seen that this dog wasn't vicious like those. This one was playing too, yapping and leaping as the children laughed and tossed the ball between them. Jim marvelled that a creature could be so different here, and remembered Mackett. He'd longed to step outside and watch them, perhaps even join in their game. The rules seemed simple enough, but he dared not. He'd only scare them. He was bigger and older and frightening to look upon with his smicken eye. His gear stowed safely away in his room, locked with his own key, and his confidence buoyed some by a full belly, he'd decided to take a stroll through the streets before settling down for the night. A dizzying variety of people hurried about their business, mostly carrying, fetching, buying and selling. He tried to imagine their stories. That heavy man in fine polycloth with the entourage of servants carrying crates. He was shopping for rare creatures like monkeys, pheasants and cats to sell to his wealthy friends as pets. That wild-eyed drunken sailor always looking over his shoulder... He was hiding from former crewmates, out to rob him of a precious map. Those women, perhaps sisters, never letting each other out of their sight. They were searching this foreign port for a child, lost to them many years ago. And everywhere, clerics, always in pairs and always slower than the other visitors, strolling like they hadn't a care in the world, but always looking He'd stopped to hear a pa preaching on a corner, a threadbare old white man that reminded him of Carrick. Even now the Lord permits the legacy of man's sin to abide. Wicked contraptions that plague the sea and the sky and the land, descendants all of that original heresy, 
man's attempt to work his arts upon simple wire, and from it create a facsimile of life. I say to you, though, are these not fitting punishments for the sinful? Do they not indeed hunt down the unbeliever and the hypocrite? Do they not seek out those that would attempt to invoke the old rites? A handful of people listened, their eyes closed in prayer as Jim had been taught, but most just bustled past, busy about their work. For all the puzzles and questions of Shoalhaven, Jim had at least found one answer. Following a wiry, sooty-looking boy toward the east side of town, he'd come at last to a workhouse, somewhere he would fit. He'd lurked for the better part of an hour, sometimes strolling past to get a better view, but always watching, trying to summon the courage to go in and beg for work. The place seemed to be a glassworks. Jim saw children with handcarts deliver old bottles and dug up scraps of fibre, which were then washed, checked, melted down and pressed into new forms. An exterior wall displayed all manner of products, from looking-glasses to window panes to a great variety of bottles and drinking vessels. Some of the children within wore burns and scars from the kilns, but all in all it appeared to be a much finer place to work than the belly of the trossel. Several times Jim almost marched himself right up to the foreman, a stoutish middle-aged woman with no more hair upon her head than there is upon a rock, but his courage failed each time. Studying himself in one of the looking-glasses and realising with horror that he looked halfway pirate, he decided that a good night's sleep and a wash would prepare him better for the task. He'd parted with a full bar and a half of copper on his way back to the inn, availing himself of a new linen shirt and some lye soap. Jim looked at his old shirt on the bed, the burnt hole gaping between the shoulders, then at his reflection in the crude polish mirror in his room. The bags under his eyes had faded, and the soap had pulled a lifetime's worth of weld soot and oil from his skin. He almost looked like a respectable member of society, rather than a runaway slave who consorted with pirates. He was halfway to the door before he remembered his eye bandage hastily stuffing it into his pocket and fastening his bent and broken eyeglass in its place. Who knows, maybe he could fashion a new lens for it at the glassworks. Hurrying past breakfast, Jim made his way through town toward the workhouse. The streets were labyrinthine, but he'd rehearsed the route half a hundred times last night before falling asleep. He was almost on autopilot when he nearly collided with a tall, hooded figure. Watch where you're going, child! She snapped, catching him before he fell to the dirt. It was Syrinx, and she seemed even more out of place here in town than he did. Jim righted himself and looked at her. She wore duller clothes now than yesterday, and had covered them with a grey hooded shawl. Her hair was no longer wrapped atop her head, but braided and clasped at her neck. Even her noble countenance had changed. Where confidence and command had been writ, now was anxiety, even fear. My, don't you look different already, she said, raising an eyebrow sceptically and taking him in, shirt, eyeglass and all. Not a trace of pirate on you, eh? Jim smiled, 
though he wasn't sure it was precisely a compliment. I'm going to apply to work in the glasshouse today, if they'll have me. Syrinx just took a breath and nodded, looking around the street with worry written on her face. Can I help you, Rink? Syrinx? She turned her attention to him briefly. It's Lorcan. He's missing again. She drew the hood close to her cheek as two clerics strolled out of a nearby house. If you see him, bring him back to me, yes? I would be in your dead child. Of course, he called, but she was already scurrying away in search of the old man, one eye always over her shoulder. It shook his confidence, seeing such an imposing figure acting so, but by the time he'd reached the glassworks, he'd forced all thoughts of yesterday, of Loken, Rinks, even Waylon and the captain, from his head, focusing on the task ahead. He stepped inside the workhouse, and into the bright, airy space where the scrap glass was collected, checked and washed. The conditions could not have been more different than what he was used to, cramped in the trussel's engine bay or sandwiched between her hull plates. Even the workers here were mostly clean, and some even sang as they worked. Hey! Outside if you're buying! Gone if you're not! yelled a rough, firm voice behind him. He turned to see the forewoman, her bold forehead wrinkled angrily at the intrusion. Summoning his courage, he marched right up to her and held out his hand. I'm Jim Hatcher. I'm here to work for you, he said, smiling. She frowned, taking a half step back and sizing him up. From her expression, he suspected he was coming up short. I'm a weldmaker and fixer, he pressed on. I've been working on ships for nine years, learned all kinds about metals, engines, fixing just about anything that... Okay, follow me. She grunted, marching past him toward the back of the room and somewhat taking the wind from his sails. Taken aback, Jim lowered his untaken hand and hurried after her. Fixing anything that has moving parts, see? But welding, that's my strongest skill, really. Steel, alum, copper even. She held up a burn-scarred hand as she walked. I said okay already. Just need a fixer to keep on top of the ovens. Rounding a corner, she took a long key from her belt and unlocked a heavy steel door. The heat hit Jim like a physical blow, and he held his hands up to shield his face. The forewoman just squinted, as if she could beat back the heat with a hard stare. Inside were a half-dozen children, bare-chested but for the heavy leather aprons and long gloves they wore to protect themselves from the trio of glowing furnaces that dominated the room. Jim watched as one child would feed the fires with everything from old tyres to crop scraps and charcoal, while another would shovel great piles of broken glass into its roaring orange mouth. Glass littered the ground, and great lumps of hissing ember belched from the furnace fires to tumble skittering across the sandy floor. Keep them running, there's work here for you, she growled. You can do that. Jim looked at the furnaces. There were no moving parts, but the stress upon the metals would be staggering. He could already see a score of ways to improve the design to focus the heat better, or load the glass without getting the workers burned in the process. I can do that. She closed the door and locked it again, then made to head back to the sorting room, indicating for Jim to follow. You'll have a bed out back with the others, but you'll need to find your own sheets. 
Two square meals a day, plus a day of leave once a month. But no leave in the town. That life flashed before Jim's eyes in a heartbeat. He'd lived it before. The captain's words floated back to him unbidden, and he stopped walking. I'm nobody's property, he said, firm enough to stop her in her tracks. What? she said, her bald head wrinkling. I'm not an indenture, like the others. I'm a free worker, got my own gear and everything. I work for... for pay. This last word barely escaped his lips, so close was the forewoman now. She appraised him anew, sucking her teeth and folding her arms. Fine. Two coppers a week, less if a furnace goes down. You got your own bed, too. Jim shook his head, unable to meet her glare. He hadn't got this far in his rehearsals. No, I'd need to bed and board here, he admitted. Less a half-copper for food, a hall for bed, she announced. And you're a free worker, so your injuries are your own to worry about. This time it was her turn to hold her hand out, and Jim took it, with only a heartbeat's hesitation. Jim strolled through the streets of Shoalhaven, a new man. Employed. A real job. The half-copper bar a week he'd have left was less than he'd hoped for, but he wouldn't have to worry about affording the inn or buying his own meals. He could save nearly all of that, add it to the clutch of bar from the captain, and soon he'd be able to afford... whatever it was he wanted. His stomach growled at a passing whiff of cooked food, and his appetite, now freed of his anxiety, returned with full force. He weighed the metal in his pocket and decided now was a good time to celebrate, the day before the port, just like the pirates did. Following the smell to a small row of food cellars, Jim found himself confronted with a dizzying array of options, and ill-equipped to choose between things he'd never before eaten. Corn mash, all lumpy and thick and grey. Kelp grillets, ribbons of flavoured seaweed skewered on metal spikes and a variety of stews, each promising real meat, though none venturing so far as to confirm the source. Eventually, Jim settled for mussels. He'd seen crewmen scrape them from the hull of the trossel before and watched hungrily as they'd come to the engine room to boil them in secret. The potkeep clipped a quarter bar from one of Jim's coppers in payment before scooping a generous clutch of the blue-grey shells into one half of a plastic bottle. Here. He popped a few more shells into the pot with a wink. They're a devil to shift when the church lot are in town. And they don't keep well, see? Don't be getting caught with them, mind, or you'll have a cleric lecturing you about all the ways they'll cook you in the afterlife. (laughs) He winked. Worth it, though, if you ask me. It's the garlic, see? He licked his lips with a smile and shuffled back to his pots. Jim perched on a stack of old tyres and tore through the shells like a man starved. Each contained a small fleshy morsel that tasted like it had been cooked in seawater, and there was a rich, savoury flavour that caused him to groan in pleasure. Jim suspected that was what the potkeep had called garlic. Finishing the mussels, Jim drained the oily broth that remained, letting the grease dribble down his chin to the pile of spent shells at his feet. With a half bar of copper a spare, he could eat like this twice a week. 
He giggled, giddy at the thought of living in such luxury, and drew strange glances from the street children that were once again out playing with their mangy dog. He didn't care. The noon bell rang, and Jim thought of the Archon. With her business in Shoalhaven now finished, she would just now be sliding out of port onto waters new, her crew barely older than these children playing in the street. He thought of Waylon and Gam, so quiet and timid. Of North and Kelpie and Slip, with his uncanny ability to get everyone on side. Darge and Boulder, and even Caber, toughened beyond their years by a life on the water. And the captain. Somehow the thought of them soured the taste of the food, and he saw a vision of himself ten years from now, older and burn-scarred, with nothing to show for it but an even greater pile of shells at his feet. The ice cap rooms atop the hill in search of blue eyed young to kill. Jim snapped from his reverie as the sing-song words snagged in his mind. Loken's song. Only it wasn't the old man singing it, but the capering children. Jim sprang to his feet and rushed toward them. That song? Where did you learn it? Jim asked, as calmly as he could, making sure to keep his bad eye closed. The last thing he wanted was for them to equate his blue eye with the grisly rhyme. They were wary of him, but the dog, smelling the grease, licked happily at his hands and face, which seemed to settle the children some. The funny man, ventured one of the young girls. He talked with Movie and sang it. She indicated the dog, who was now investigating the pile of discarded shells. An old man? Blue eyes? Where did he go? The girl clammed up, fearing she'd said something wrong, but Jim reassured her. He's my friend. I'm trying to find him. He's lost. This seemed to resonate with the girl, who simply raised a finger and pointed down the street toward the main square where Jim had bade farewell to the crew just yesterday. Jim thanked her and took off in search of the old man, soon finding himself caught up in a flow of bodies all heading the same way. There was a chatter in the air, especially among the sea folk, and more than once Jim heard the mutter of reward and fortune. When he finally made it to the square, he found it transformed. The stalls had been moved aside, and a crowd was pressed about a raised wooden storefront, which seemed to have been commandeered as a kind of stage by a group of clerics. Mostly the pars had seemed to be ignored or avoided by the ragged motley of Shoalhaven, but today something was a change. Pressed and jostled by bigger men that blocked his view, Jim found himself scrambling halfway up a lantern post to get a look at what was going on. The storefront had been cleared of its goods to make way for the clerics. Crates of recycled metal tools shoved to the sides or hefted to the floor. Jim saw all manner of characters in the crowd. Merchants, seamen, local crafters, even indentured kids had stopped to listen. Even the windows around the square were filled with onlookers, hoping for a better vantage from on high. Jim saw a thick-set man in a heavy coat peering from a shaded, grimy window and recognised him as Jaglian Tsar. A great wave of whispering rippled through the crowd with silence on its heels as a neat man in fresh-pressed pars robes climbed the stage, pushing past the assembled clerics, and raised his hands for silence. He kept them raised until an absolute and uncanny quiet had descended, and even then a moment longer, 
before speaking in a deep, mesmeric voice. You have come for riches. How easy it is to bring a crowd when the promise is of easy coin. He tossed a silver bar coin into the congregation, who snatched and squabbled at it like dogs after a morsel. He waited for them to settle again, looking around imperiously before continuing. This is what we have become. Scurrying about in the dirt, hoping to raise ourselves from squalor. Living with blighted crops, foul water, malformed young. I am here to tell you there will be no salvation for us, not without the Lord. And, rest assured, the Lord will not come back to us, not while the old ways survive. There were groans from the crowd, feeling they'd been tricked into another sermon, but the pa raised his hands again and continued. Fear not. I'm not here for your scraps of broken tech. Greater sins abide. I seek the true heretical knowings, those secrets that brought the wrath of the Lord down upon us and left us here in this tainted world. He gestured at the square in disgust, as if just being here had somehow infected him. And to that end, I wish to purchase your help. Once again, the promise of coin had lured the crowd's attention, and the immaculate pa seemed to know it. He paced back and forth across the makeshift stage, his gaze sweeping across the assembled dregs of Shoalhaven, waiting until he was sure every eye was upon him before continuing. When man committed the ultimate sin, mocking the creation of life with his thinking machines, the Lord, in his wisdom, sent both the flare of the sun and the great flood to purge the earth of this blasphemy. And yet we find ourselves still unclean, kept apart from the paradise that should have followed. For not everything, it seems, was cleansed. There remains holy work for us to do. Legend holds that a moat of this heretical knowledge yet survives. Stories speak of the scanned who, fearful of the coming floods, hid their heresies deep within a mountain island. He paused letting his words sink in. I am speaking, of course, of the story of Thule. Amused muttering shot through the crowd. No pa had ever come so close to admitting as much that the old secrets were still out there, or that something as outlandish as the lost island of Thule could be real. There were laughs and sceptical jeers, and even a snatch of shouts, deriding the pa and his companions as fools. But the man held his hands out and bellowed over the braying crowd. Yes, yes, just a children's story. A magical island with food abundant and riches, 
where the secrets of the world before the flood survive and the sun never sets a fantasy, of course. But within every story is a grain of truth, and this one is no different. A pair of clerics behind him were dragging someone to the front of the stage now, a frail, bloodied figure with a coarse sack hood pulled over his face. They halted next to the par, forcing their prisoner to his knees. We have come to learn that the Scand really did try to preserve their knowledge, and that they entrusted the secret of its location to a group of genetic deviants they called Lucans, or Albinos. He reached out and clutched the hood. Or more commonly, fairies. With this last word, he ripped the hood free, revealing a girl's face, impossibly pale, with fair, salt-white hair and wild eyes. She was slender and sagged forward onto her bound hands as if with weeks of abuse. Jim was put in mind of a butterfly with crushed wings, graceful and delicate, manhandled and broken. There was a collective intake of breath as the crowd struggled to accept the truth of their own eyes. The fair folk were not real. They existed only in tales told to children about the world before the now along with the creatures who had scarred the surface of the moon and wizards who could conjure things from thin air with their machines. Yet here one knelt, burned terribly by the sun and blinking back at them. Jim tore his eyes from the girl and looked among the crowd, every eye transfixed, though the grimy window above where Saar once stood was now empty. One freak don't mean fool's real, does it? sprung a heavily accented voice from the crowd. Can't get paid if these legends of yours turn out to be a crockful. Leave Thule to us, the pa smiled, though there was ice in his words as he turned toward the voice. No, your task is not so ambitious. I'm promising a very real fortune to the man who can simply take us to the home of these fairies. He gestured at his prisoner with a sneer. Thirty thousand pieces of silver. This time the gasps were shot through with excited chatter, as objections were forgotten, plans were made, alliances forged, and the money was spent a hundred times over. The crowd surged forward reaching out for the par's attention, clamouring to be heard with every rumour or tidbit they'd learned or invented. The fairy girl stared blankly past the groping crowd into the middle distance, almost catatonic. Jim couldn't take his eyes from her. There was something about her that seemed remote, untouched even by the hands of her captors. It was as if not all of her was really there, but had retreated, inside to a deep cave, a place of safety. Only her bound hands moved, almost subconsciously, a habitual prayer, perhaps. One hand, a fist with thumb extended, resting upon an open palm. Jim almost lost his grip on the lantern post when he realised. That was no prayer. 
That was hand sign. That was help. Our voyage through the world of the Risen Tide continues in the next episode, which will be here in just a few days. New chapters will be released on Monday and Thursday every week, so hit subscribe to stay up to date, or if you just can't wait, the full tale is available today on Audible, Spotify, and more. If you'd rather read than listen, head over to talesoftherisentide.com or Amazon to grab yourself a hard copy or ebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>